0: Hello, and welcome to another Charity Chat episode. We are your hosts, Osman
1: Mughal and Daniel Guntaliki. This episode is the final part of our series around having difficult conversations. We are delighted to be joined by Karen Bradshaw and Yasin Singhal. Karen Bradshaw is the Chief Executive Officer of Charity Finance Group, CFG, which she joined in 2010. In addition, Karen has supported a number of organisations, including being a member of NCVO's National Assembly, the Finance and Risk Committee of the British Asian Trust, and until recently, Karen was chair of the Board of Directory of Social Change. In 2015, Karen was named Charity Principal of the Year at the Charity Times Awards. In 2016, she received the Association Excellence Award for Leadership and was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours List 2021 honoured for her services to charity. Yaseen Senghor is Inclusion Equity Manager at Impact Culture and the Director at Confronting Change, Diversity and Inclusion Strategies. She's passionate about LGBT plus inclusion and creating anti-racist spaces, creating inclusive workplaces where we can all bring our whole selves and thrive. As a diversity and inclusion consultant, speaker, writer, facilitator, mentor, sensitivity coach and occasional model, Yasin has a wealth of experience across the public, private and third sector and has worked with a range of organisations, including major telecom firms, universities, the NHS, arts and educational organisations. As an experienced diversity and inclusion specialist, she has worked with companies to develop and implement DNI strategies and drive tangible change in organisational culture.
0: Today's episode focuses on being okay with getting things wrong and making genuine changes. It was fascinating to hear about the ways in which both of our guests see the sector operating in the political spaces and addressing social change. The need to be okay with getting things wrong was closely linked to notions of authenticity and vulnerability, which we explored both in part one and part two. We consider the challenges the sector is facing when it comes to addressing equity, diversity and inclusion alongside the need to provide safety and space for minoritized colleagues to thrive in the charity sector. Both Yasin and Karen bring a huge array of knowledge, expertise and honesty to this conversation. So here's our conversation with Karen and Yasin on being okay with getting things wrong and making genuine changes. Karen, Yassine, thank you so much for your time today and for being with us at Charity Chat. Um, Before we get into the podcast and discuss the various topics that we will do, um, I just wanted to give um, our audience the opportunity to learn a little bit more about yourselves. So could you share a little bit more about yourselves, um, the work that you currently do, um, and what motivates you to work in this area? Um, Karen, if I can come to you first and then Yassine.
2: Sure. Thanks, Asmund. Yeah, so I'm the chief executive of an organisation called the Charity Finance Group. Um, We're a charity ourselves. We're a membership organisation. We exist to try and drive up impact through great financial management and great financial leadership, um, which might not immediately jump to mind as to why I'd be interested in, in creating diverse working environments or really focusing in on culture, because that might not be something that immediately springs to mind. But I've worked in and around the sector for most of my career, and what I've noticed time and time again is that there are barriers to people really fulfilling their potential, that there are uh, ways in which particular um, individuals are almost groomed for success to go through the process, that interviews are weighted in a particular way, that we ask for, for degrees and various other things are set up to not really give the equal opportunity to people and that when you give people equal opportunity when you give people the opportunity to shine and to really uh, express their potential that you get fabulous outcomes you get brilliant decisions you get great outputs and so that's where I've become really quite passionate about culture um, being a really important part of of how we drive forward change within the social sector.
0: Thanks Karen and over to Yaseen.
2: Um, yeah, so I am the founder and director of Confronting
3: Change, the NI Strategies, um, and we are a company that support. Uh, we go into workplaces, community groups, schools, wherever will have us, whoever needs our support, um, and we encourage them to look at their EDI practices um, and just consider how they're building inclusive workplaces through an intersectional lens. Um, I also work part-time as an inclusion and equity manager at Impact Culture, which is a consultancy that also does EDI work. Um, And I kind of do additional, like the jack of all trades I do, or I have wear many hats with a few other um, uh, inclusion uh, enterprises as well, um, such as We Create Space and Learnist, which are um, LGBT-centred organisations. Um, I came into this work from, I started at Stonewall, which is the largest LGBTQ uh, charity in Europe. Um, And I worked as part of their workplaces team where we did spend a lot of time going into workplaces and supporting um, EDI teams or LGBTQ groups or um, HR teams in making sure that those workplaces were inclusive of LGBTQ plus employees. And that was looking through a holistic lens at things like policies, uh, senior leadership, engagement, um, communication, and then output output and work done as well, um, as well as how that impacted um, employees internally. Um, and so this has always been a passion. This was driven very much by my personal identities, identified as a, a queer, Black, gender non-conforming woman. I'm an immigrant. I um, I'm like a bigger women or plus size women, And so like there's multiple intersections of my life that have been impacted by, um, you know, being marginalized and oppressed within society. Um, and so the opportunity to actually actively engage in this work um, and utilize my experiences of oppression to um, encourage organizations to reflect on the work that they're doing and also how they might be um, wittingly or unwittingly uh, um, participating in a up- upholding oppression within society um, and that happens across sectors Uh, and yeah so there's a personal motivation as well as the genuine desire to see um, and I have seen the impact of you know building inclusive workplaces and really taking a step back to consider um, at every level and in every way um, how embedding inclusion and thinking about um, inclusive practice really can impact the lives of not only staff internally but also um, the work that charitable organizations do and how we shift perspectives in society as well. and then aside from that like I said I do loads of other little bits as well. I'm a speaker, I'm a host, I'm a mentor facilitator um as that all those things run alongside the consultancy work as well. Um, I have uh, social media campaigns and things like that that I run also um so yeah just just quite busy doing lots of little
1: bits brilliant no thank you that was great to hear from both of you and so and so much work ongoing sort of thing and um, so the first question we've got is around how do we encourage and create a culture where people feel comfortable in sharing their current understandings and being open to developing their knowledge so then also to kind of look at what practical tips can individuals teams and organizations then implement to take um to create that kind of space i don't know if anyone wants to take it first or yasin do you want to kick off Yeah, Um,
3: so I think uh, it definitely has to be a two pronged approach. I think people need to recognize their personal responsibility in creating this um, and and also then an organizational responsibility in actually encouraging that learning and creating the space around it and for it to happen. And so, you know, bringing in the training where necessary, creating the forms to have conversations. Um, But I also think it is quite important to recognize the the individual role that we all play in, in you know, in, in embedding this into our workplaces and our lives. Um, and so I think it is quite important to, for there to be a conversation around what this actually, this work means to us as individuals, how it potentially impacts our lives and our teams um, and the people around us and, and our lives outside of workplaces as well. Um, and really develop a sense of personal motivation in, in doing this as well and really understanding um, the impact that it potentially has but also like the world that we want to see like we all have to have a practical role in creating that and I think it's quite important and actually quite empowering um, when people take a step to to recognize that and to actively determine the steps they're going to take and I'm quite a fan of people developing their own actual action plans um, when thinking about things like inclusion or allyship or you know however they're doing their approach to things are solidarity even but like really putting down practical steps that they can take that they want to um drive their work forward to make sure that they're also holding themselves accountable and um, that they're creating um a real structure to their their approach as well um, and so they're not just kind of you know flailing wildly like reading the, a book here or doing something there but there's actually like um measurable objectives and things that they can that can guide their, their work and the conversation as it goes forward
2: yeah, that's fantastic. Where I think where I would add, and I would start by saying that I don't think that CFG is by any stretch of the imagination there yet, and that culture is an ongoing commitment. It's not something you can just, I've done this, I've done a process, I've had a trainer and I've done, I've read a book. You have to commit to this constantly. It's, it's a state of being. Um, and for me, the buzzword, if you what like, is safety. I don't think people can really share their lived experience or push into their discomfort unless they are vulnerable and they can't be vulnerable without feeling safe and you can't feel safe without boundaries. So the point that you were just making there Yazine about having structure I think is absolutely critical. I think you build trust through having real clarity structure Um, and I don't mean that in the sense that you you push people into boxes but rather they're really clear where the red lines are, where the non-negotiable bits are. Um, and that there's safety to be able to fail, to be able to say, I've got this wrong. I'd much rather that somebody was able to accept that they've got something wrong and learn and move through it than to withdraw or to or, or to almost be virtuously angry on the outside that somebody, you know, has got it wrong and to pillory, pillory them. You know, the guilt and the shame that that is associated with getting things wrong actually paralyzes people. So in order to really affect cultural change i think you have to have safety and you have to have safety with boundary and vulnerability
1: Mm. and well that leads really nicely on to the next part which was um, a question around how important do you think it is to get things wrong um and also uh, whether you've got any tips around um how people can manage situations where either they've said something wrong or you actually want to address someone who has said something wrong because i think when looking at that safety, um, when people don't feel necessarily valued or feel vulnerable in the workplace, actually calling someone out on when they've made you feel uncomfortable is quite difficult. So I don't know if you've got any tips around either um, yeah, how to call someone out or an appropriate way to address something, as well as the importance of um, making sure people do get things wrong.
3: Um, So, yeah, I mean, getting things wrong is vital. Like that's when the learning happens is when you make mistakes. You take a moment to reflect on what the mistake was and where it came from, more importantly. So what's the root cause of it? If that's something in your learning that, you know, you need to unlearn or you need to sit with and reflect upon um, what the source of that, you know, that information or that thought process or the bias, whatever it is, where has that come from? Um, And then to spend that time actively unlearning and challenging that and processing a lot of the difficult emotions that will undermine and inevitably come along with that as well because it, it is very difficult to accept that you're wrong or you've done something wrong or that you've done something that has upset somebody or offended somebody um, and so that is just a really difficult starting point for for anybody I think just to accept they're wrong and to sit with it and to process some of the emotions that it might raise um I think in terms of confronting that and channeling and challenging things. Um, there's always this uh, conversation that we have between calling in versus calling out. Um, and I think, you know, they both kind of have the valid um, moments uh, where, where you have to choose which one is, you know, the most, going to be the most useful and the most effective form of challenge. Um, but by calling in, I mean, that point, so calling out is kind of like a direct challenge. Like, you know, you overhear something or you witness something, um, like oppressive language or, you know, something like racist or homophobic or transphobic or something, and you directly challenge somebody um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be shouting people down or anything, but it can be a direct confront confrontation of like, that's wrong, you cannot say that, that kind of thing. Um, And there's certainly moments when that is important, whether you are the person who's being um, oppressed or victimized in that situation, or whether you're, you're, and actually perhaps, more importantly, if you're an ally and if you're not going to be personally um, impacted or um, uh, offended by that statement, I think that's a really important moment for allies to step up and put themselves in the way of harm in that sen- scenario. But um, with that and within all these conversations, we always have to centre the person who's being um, offended, who's being marginalised, being oppressed in that situation and so I think it is quite important to just before we dive in head first to maybe take stock of the situation and try and determine um how that person is feeling if this if you challenging somebody or confronting them in that way might act- actually make things more difficult for that individual um, and if you're individual the individual who's who's kind of being uh, targeted um again it's kind of while it is very important for us to stand up for ourselves and to challenge these things, it is also a moment for you to take um, takes of the situation and determine is it going to be more useful for you to challenge in that moment, or is it more useful for you to kind of protect yourself, um, you know, take yourself out of the situation, do whatever you need to do to, to make sure you're safe? Is it your responsibility to educate that person in that scenario or to challenge them, or is it your responsibility to yourself? Um, And then on the flip, the other side of the kind of accompanying side of that is the calling in idea. Um, So um, that kind of taking stock of the situation, particularly if you are an ally or somebody who's witnessed something um, rather than somebody who's being impacted by it, of um, perhaps taking that person aside after the incident has occurred um, and then explaining to them, you know, kind of going through the whole process of why what they've said is wrong or is oppressive. And I think actually within that, a really important element is sharing your own learning and your own journey and your own um, understanding of perhaps uh, situations where you've um, committed a similar act of, uh, you know, a similarly oppressive act um, or where you've done something similarly offensive and then sharing your knowledge and your learning from that situation. Um, Because I think it just humanizes people and it, it shows a bit of vulnerability and it shows that we're not, you know, trying to be the, um, oh like I'm right about everything I've got all the answers to everything it shows that we're all on a journey together but actually it's still quite important that we are actually on that journey um, and so I think the conversations absolutely need to happen but um, it's it's about determining who's the right person to have them and is it safe to have them in the moment or is it perhaps safe to have them or going to be more effective to have them outside of that specific moment but making sure that you are still making that challenge and not just shying away from it as well.
2: Yeah, I think I I endorse absolutely everything you just said, Yuzina. I I guess the things that I would add is that I think we have, it's not about importance of getting it wrong. It's about acknowledging that we are going to get things wrong. It's about embracing the fact that whether you try or you set, nobody sets out to get things wrong, let's face it. I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up the morning that I made a mistake and and set out or plan to do it. It happened. Um, And so for me, the important thing is acknowledging and, and embracing the fact that you will get things wrong and therefore making it acceptable to be wrong. I don't mean accepting and tolerating bad behavior. Um, what I mean is saying that it's okay to get things wrong and to be able to stand up and say that you've got something wrong. Because if we make it unsafe to fail, what you do is you you drive that behavior underground. You, you, you make people pull back. Um, they hide their mistakes. They hide their, um, the, you know, they don't come forward. They don't try new things they withdraw, they, be, they become uh, less participative. And I, and I think that therefore it is really important that we just acknowledge that people will get things wrong and it's through getting things wrong that we learn what the right way forward is. As, as Yuzaine said, it's about that personal growth. Um, the other thing I would say is that, that I think we shouldn't necessarily always focus on what we got wrong, but rather which bits that we are getting right. Uh, You know, if we make a mistake, there are often right things within it. So the intent might be good. And sometimes I've found in the conversations that I've had where people have with good intent got something wrong. So they've been clumsy rather than um, their intent was poor. Leaning into the good part, i.e. you were intending to do the right thing and trying to show them why it wasn't the right thing um, by amplifying and and praising, if you like, uh, the fact that their intent was good helps move people through. I think the problem is when we're confrontational, um, it can sometimes it can sometimes make things worse rather than better. Um, and, and I think that, again, saying, saying the same thing again, safety is the buzzword here. You don't want to be making the situation worse because we have to make sure that the person that is on the receiving end of the harm isn't made, uh, the situation isn't made worse and they aren't harmed more. Um, so for me, that's the priority. How do we protect the person who is on the receiving end of poor behavior? not how do we uh, safeguard or sympathise with the person who has got something good, if that makes sense.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. You've, you've both made some really excellent points about the importance of having that safe space and expressing oneself in order to really make a difference within this area, because it's only when we have uncomfortable conversations that are honest, genuine and authentic that we can actually progress. Um, and far too often when we when we are hesitant to say something or we're hesitant to actually speak um on certain issues and that's where our progress is um perhaps not as um as good as it should be um you you both mentioned about the importance of the individual i wanted to bring a more organizational lens to this now um and ask you a quite complex question but hopefully we can um kind of break it down a little bit as well what role do you think charities um what role do you think they should play in society today Um, Over the last year or so, we've seen many charities coming out and taking a stand on certain issues. And one would argue when it's socially acceptable to. So do you think charities um, should have a more, quote unquote, political role? Um, And do you think they should take more of a stand? And do you have any insight and can you share with our listeners why they may not take that stand when it may not be you know perhaps the most popular thing to do um yeah seen if i can come to you first
2: yeah um
3: so i think it's always interesting when um charities or hide behind or even you know individuals politicians whoever um kind of stand behind this the stance of like oh i don't want to take a political stance on something or i don't want to be overtly political and i just i don't understand how social justice and human rights are a political stance like that's if you're particularly if you're a charitable organization, surely that forms the foundation and basis of the work that you do is um, standing up for human rights in all forms. And actually, I think regardless of what the specific um, goal and purpose of your individual organization is, um, if we are approaching things through an intersectional lens there will inevitably you will should be aiming or imagine unless you're a very very specific charity you will be aiming to support um, marginalized people across the board and module, you know people who will be you know impacted and affected by race by racism by homophobia transphobia by ableism um and so like i think and and you know sexism and everything else and so you should be able to um i think taking a stand against any of those things isn't a political action I think it is actually uh inherent part of being a charitable organization um I have like and in the last year I think it's been quite interesting how a lot of organizations you know after the death of George Floyd and um you know the rise of like the Black Lives Matter protests and the conversations around race a lot of a lot of charity organizations initially were quite reluctant to make statements and to be quite um visible and public about their um support uh for Black Lives Matter movement um, and particularly also then to take reflection on their own um, contributions perhaps to maintaining oppressive structures and racist structures and things like that and I think that's actually been part of the fear as well is that actually it isn't good enough to to stand up and um, be vocally you know anti-racist or anti-oppression if you have you cannot um, take that moment of reflection and you can't take a step back And and admit where you have been, um, where you have uh, participated in that, where you have um, upheld those systems and structures. And so, I think that's part of the the difficulty around that. Is that like even those organizations who have taken that step forward and who have, you know, a lot everyone's made the bold statements now. It's kind of uh, you, everybody has sort of had to. But it's that next step of saying, okay, what are you actually doing internally, though? And how is that filtering through to the work that you're doing and how you're supporting your beneficiaries, your service users, um, the communities you're you're trying to engage and support? How are you creating room to bring those voices into the conversation a bit more? How are you um, reshifting and restructuring your organizational hierarchies to ensure that actually the people who you are trying to support um, are really influencing the work that you're doing and able to share that their experiences of all kinds of marginalized characteristics and identities um, and how you are genuinely building that into the work that you're doing moving forward. So I think it has been um, like, that's where a lot of the reluctance is. And also, yeah, there's a reluctance for, you know, backlash and kind of not being seen to be kind of Too overtly in support of anything that could be dangerous. But I think if, again, like I don't understand how you can be in that space and the the channel sector if you are not willing to push things forward and you're not willing to, especially in terms of the responsibility that we have to shape the societies that we want to live in and we want to exist in. I don't understand how you can't, um, how you, you know you take a step back from that or you shy away from that responsibility. But I think it is integral to the work, to that work.
2: Yeah, hear, here. I mean, for me, I think what we're talking about is political, but it's not party political. You know, charity, social change was born from struggle. Nothing that we've we've ever done is being nice and gentle, to use the words of, the, of our Chancellor of the Exchequer. Charity is not gentle. It's born of struggle. We have it's inherent in what we do. So I don't think there's anything wrong with us being political. And in fact, the law says that we can be political. We just can't be party political. And therefore, I get really, and I nearly swore that I get very upset, let's say, um, when we hear uh, people like the outgoing Secretary of State for DCMS talking about a woke culture and wanting to uh, make sure that the chair of the Charity Commission, when they're put in place, is actively keeping charities, quote, in their lane you know, what is our lane? I think our lane is social justice. You're absolutely spot on, Yusine. And and I think over the years, we have been encouraged to think of our lane being very much about, you know, environmental issues being for an environmental charity, for example. And now we recognise that we're part of an ecosystem. We're part of society. We can't just focus in on the very specific charitable objectives, because we are part of that society in which we live. And that means that, whether we like it or not, we are going to have to focus in on a whole broad range of different issues. And this is just one of them. So I push well against this uh, anti-woke agenda that, that the uh, Secretary of State talked about in the Telegraph. I think it, it's completely wrong. And I applaud the Good Law Project for taking a stance against political interference, interference in the Charity Commission uh, chair appointment. So, you know, i I think that charities do play a role in society. They are part of of much of the social change, whether that's um, the suffrage movement or whether that is about uh, equality for uh, people of LGBT backgrounds or or gender or race or whatever it might be. We are at the centre of all of that and we cannot pull back from it. It's inherent in what we do. So we have a right to campaign. We have a right to be political. We just don't have a right to be party political. Um, And I think we should ensure that we... Uh, don't allow ourselves to be frightened into silence because, you know, if we don't step up and make a change, if we don't lean into all of this stuff, uh, if we don't take our part in in society and make sure that the inequities are are lost, particularly against the backdrop of the pandemic where we've seen disadvantage exacerbated and the gap between have and have not being widened. You know, if, if we can't, who can? who is going to be the the, uh, antidote almost for the divisive, toxic uh, commentary that is coming out of of our current political discourse. And that's not a party political comment. There is toxicity in our our political discourse. We are living in a very polarised society at the moment where I think things have got worse in some cases, not better.
1: Mm. No I think that's really interesting. Um I wonder if I could just um add like another question on to that to get your opinions around I suppose um the worry that charities might have about the difference between party political and political because I think there's been so much narrative around being political and, as you say, like staying in your lane or not getting involved. And I think sometimes you see it with social justice issues where people don't have that confidence. Like, as um, Yasin, you said about there was a moment where people weren't really responding to the Black Lives Matter movement, and suddenly there was. And I wonder if you have any any thoughts on what kind of pushes to that point where people have that confidence and get on the right side and, and feel both the confidence, but also how do you get to that stage without the confidence and just do what's right. I don't know if, there's, there's, um, if you've got any thoughts around that.
2: I, I don't know that I have any thoughts on how you get confidence. I, th- I think it takes one uh, brave organisation to step forward and then others will follow. And I don't think that, you know, if we, if we live by the buzzword of integrity, if that's one of our values, it certainly is mine. It's not what you do when people are watching. It's what you think is right to do, whether they're watching or not, whatever the consequences are. And, and I think organisations like the National Trust, uh, the, the Royal National Lifeboats and, and others that have taken a very positive and uh, vis- a very visible stance against things like Pretty Patel's comments on uh, saving the wrong kind of individual from, from boats in the, in the channel or uh, the National Trust leaning into telling proper, authentic stories of the... Uh, buildings under their, their um, custodianship, their guardianship. You know, it, it, when, we, when we see that being pushed back against and we then see the Charity Commission investigate and be a, and not be able to say that they are the wrong side of the law, then I think that starts to give confidence to trustees that, that they can act with integrity and in accordance with their charitable objectives and be part of this social change that is absolutely necessary without it getting them the wrong side of the law. So, uh, you know, that that would be my, my sense is that we have to be brave and confident and push back. And often we aren't then um, finding ourselves the wrong side, because actually we're on the right side of the, of the argument here.
3: Yeah, um, I think um, I agree with this point around like bravery. And um, I think it does have to be also like a sector wide uh, sh- shift as well. Um, and I think so. From the work that I do, what I've seen where these, the push happened. So when I was talking about that like shift where people were reluctant and hesitant at first, and when they did start speaking out, it was absolutely internally driven by, generally speaking, junior members of staff, um, and just because of the nature of things, usually that meant junior members um, staff of colour, and. Um, you know, it was like an incredible powerful moment because I think a lot of people felt empowered and felt like they had to drive change within their organizations. And there was also input from like service users and things like that as well. But it felt like these voices and that real push for change was coming from um, like the ground level, the grassroots level, um, and that there had maybe previously been a bit of a disconnect between what was happening in kind of, you know, senior leadership meetings and board meetings. And so I think it's incredibly important and that highlights the absolute necessity for diversity within those spaces and actually bringing in a wider range of voices and a wide range of perspectives who um, not only understand that the importance of challenge, but the importance of challenging things properly and correctly and with sensitivity and thought and um, uh, and kind of from a perspective of of lived experience. And um, so understanding like, you know, why it's important um, and the impact that those charity organizations have in, being really vocal in their support or protest against you know, like things like racism. Um, and so like, not just diversity in those spaces, but actually genuinely making those spaces safe and inclusive and um, spaces where these, pe- these marginalized voices actually are listened to and are heard and have opportunities for decision-making powers and to influence you know, the route of organizations will take, not just you know, in the immediate aftermath of an incident, but also long-term strategies and things like that. Um, And I don't think we're going to see huge shifts and huge changes while we still have, you know, predominantly white boards with, you know, everybody of a certain age demographic and a certain experience of life, certain um, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds. It's not going to there's not going to be any diversity of thought if we don't bring new voices into that conversation um, and encourage people. I think that's where the bravery also happens. Um, And that's maybe a slower shift because it's not you can't just you know, dump people into that space as well. If it's still not safe, that's not helpful either. So it is a bit of a slow process of making sure that those spaces are genuinely inclusive, are genuinely open to change as well internally, as well as like this kind of wider sectoral change that could happen as a result of that also.
2: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point actually. Uh, the other thing I would add to it is is around risk management if I can sort of slip back into my day job. I think if the risk is higher, for not acting, those individuals who aren't driven by real integrity that really see that this is the right thing to do, will be forced to make the change because the risk of not changing is greater. And, you know, to some extent, once we reach that tipping point where you aren't going to retain staff, you're not going to be able to uh, keep your donors, you're not going to be able to have your beneficiaries uh, rating what you do highly, Um, you are going to be in receipt of, of competitors coming up that are taking that space because they are creating safety and a space that is inclusive and diverse, then then the tipping point on, on risk goes and then you will start to see that action. But you're so right. You can't change it overnight if we don't change some of the structure. And there is so much structural inequality and so much lack of safety built into the system. You know, dumping a load of people with certain lift experience into a space that is completely... Um, command and control, white dominated, Um, it's just, it's not going to get the best out of them, it's going to set them up to fail, but it's also going to harm, It's going to create more harm. So, um, yeah, those those will be my extra thoughts. If we can't get it through integrity, we can also get it through risk management.
0: Lots of great insights there, both, Um, thank you for sharing that, and there's so much to unpick um, there, but I just wanted to um, go back to the importance of having genuine and authentic conversations and what does that look like in practice to both of you um, in your kind of day-to-day work Um, and what more can organizations do in this space to encourage those authentic conversations. I think particularly um, after the murder of George Floyd um, last year in May we saw a lot of organizations um, trying to move actively within the area putting out statements but a lot of that work unfortunately fell on the shoulders of people of colour within the charity sector so how do we ensure that there are genuine and authentic conversations happening how do we ensure that there is um, there is allyship but there's also the importance of lived experience which can never be underestimated and how do we ensure that that all comes together in a meaningful way where there is active participation from senior leadership as well as from the grassroots. Um,
3: Yasin, if I can come to you, and then Karen, You've kind of summed it up a little bit there. Like, I think it's so important that this has to be understood as an organizational responsibility, this work, creating these inclusive spaces, and also thinking about the, the work that your charitable organization is set up to do. Like, how are you actually um, creating change in the world? What is your purpose? Uh, and so it, it, I think a lot of people have been, going, like falling back into the space of, you know, fear of getting things wrong, or um, yes, we need to platform the voices of people of color, but then not recognizing the emotional labor that that's adding onto their shoulders or um, you know, putting people who are in junior level positions, giving them all this additional responsibility without additional support um, surrounding that, and definitely not without any kind of like financial remun- remuneration if that how from us along with it as well. Uh, and so expecting all this work, which ultimately um, benefits the organization, especially in the immediate, far more than it's going to benefit those individuals, but like expecting that work to be happening um, and for it to be almost like something, you know, they might, they should be grateful to do in a way. Um, And that's something that I've seen quite frequently. Uh, And so I think it's, it is a little bit difficult and I can appreciate that it is difficult, especially if you are an organization that has not done this work before and is just coming to it. And you do want to create that space for the people with lived experience to lead on these projects. But I think, you know, if you have a strong leadership team, a really important element of that is taking the range of certain things and, and understanding when it is your role to step in. And if, even if that means providing the appropriate support and that can mean, you know, going out externally and bringing in um, somebody else like, like myself, for example, who can um, help guide and support that work. Um, but, but just not just, you know, thinking that it's gonna be other yeah, people of color uh, or junior members of staff or people who are going to be almost grateful for this work to happen. Um, and I think part of that and part of doing that in a really meaningful way means, you know, finding the resources and the budgets and the time resources as well as people resources to make sure that this work is embedded in everything that you do organizationally and at every level of what you do um, and how you operate. And so, you know, you know, EDI can't just be something that you attach on, on the side of, you know, your kind of day to day processes and things like that. It needs to be like all those processes need to be actively reviewed and then look for the touch points and where you can embed EDI into that from a foundational level. Um, and there, you know, that will take time again, that will take additional resources because it is for most organizations, especially long established organizations, it's going to be a huge process. Um, but I think that, you know, if this is going to be done in a sustainable way and in a way that has any chance of longevity and any chance of lasting beyond the time when, you know, you have those individuals driving it, it does have to be uh, embedded in, at a foundational level.
2: Yeah, I guess I, I would give an example of CFG and our experience, because I think we got this wrong. Um, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable and share uh, publicly that that we didn't get this right. So for since probably 2014, 15, I've, I've, I've always been, as I said in the intro, committed to to trying to create a safe environment where, you, where people bring their whole selves to work, that you honour the differences in people. And I've really lent into that in the last few years in, in really trying to create a space that, that does enable people to, to be honest and authentic about who they are, to, to shorten the gap between who they are in their private life and who they are in their workspace, because I think it's only th- by being able to be true to themselves that they can really shine. Um, but I, and, and therefore, there have been many, many things that we've done as an organisation that have been about the pursuit of inclusion. Uh, And the removal of barriers, whether it would be not having degrees on on uh, job applications or um, structuring interviews in a way that that enable people to bring out better sides of themselves rather than that sort of polished interview technique that they might have got through their university route or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of things that we've done, but we were not very vocal about it. Um, And I felt very much that it would be virtue signaling to go. This is what we've done. This is what we've done. Um, but it was only by talking to colleagues um, and particularly my staff, uh, women of colour in, in the main, who were saying, we want you to be out there saying what you're doing. We want to be able to say we work for an organisation that does this. Um, and, and so what I, what I did when this first happened was, was speak to a number of my staff about what they wanted to do. And we, cr- we created an internal staff diversity forum that they, they led where I think I got it massively wrong is I did not give them clarity around what the remit was, I did not give them the resources, I did not give them the space and the authority. Um, I didn't give them the support they needed to be able to execute that well. Um, And therefore, um, I'm not they've done a brilliant job in the circumstances, but they weren't set up in a way that they could really make the most of of that opportunity. And that would have not not been good for them, it will have done them some harm individually. But it also won't have helped CFG move forward and create that safe space where we're not just talking a good talk. We're actually changing the way that we behave and the way that we work. So my advice and my learning from that is that I think you have to ask. You have to open the conversations. You in the same way that we wouldn't try and do to our beneficiaries. We shouldn't do to our staff whatever their differences are. We should be asking them what they want and what will be helpful to them. And then absolutely is right we need to resource it properly we need to give them the structure so they can have freedom within that structure because it's only without the boundaries without the structure it becomes chaotic and it becomes almost you you risk setting them up to fail because you're not giving them um the support and the space and the clarity that they need to be able to do a really good job of this um and also you're you're putting a burden on the shoulders of individuals um and, and giving them it's like, this is your problem to sort out. It isn't, it's our problem to sort out. So we've got to put the commitment and resource into making it happen. Um, so, you know, that's that's my experience of it. And I think the authenticity to go back to an earlier point can only come through safety. You can only be vulnerable if you feel safe. You can only be safe if you have boundaries. So for me, that is the starting point. We have to have a really good look at ourselves and be honest when we get it wrong and say, I'm sorry, because it, it you know, The best apology is change behavior. I know it's trope and it's cliche, but it's true. If you can actually change something for somebody moving forward, then they are more likely to know that you genuinely have regret for what happened and commitment to make it different so it doesn't happen again and that the harm is is stopped. And I think you can only do that if you're honest about uh, where you've tried and failed or where you haven't given it the right uh, resourcing to to be able to make the right uh, change happen.
3: Can I um, just add to that? Because I really, yeah, I fully agree at every level. Like I do think also, um, as we're talking about kind of um, sector-wide changes as well, like the vulnerability that you've just showed in sharing your experiences and sharing both the positive and the the learning that you can continue to work on and build on, I think absolutely more of that needs to happen. We definitely need to have more of these conversations across the sector and across different organisations and kind of step away from this um, competitive Uh, like and I understand why that competitive uh, nature is sort of embedded in things and you know by the nature of like capitalist society that we exist in that's going to unfortunately filter through to every sector even the charity sector um in terms in things like you know competition for for funding and, and donors and things like that but absolutely I think if we are moving towards real change we have to learn from each other and not just from our own mistakes like why should we all continue like reinventing the wheel and kind of you know, causing the same harm and again and again and again when actually we could learn from each other's mistakes and we could share some of these resources as well and I think that's also something that um people are maybe a little bit reluctant to do but the impact and the potential for that is so huge if we actually come together in certain ways and um I think respect each other's expertise and in and also each other's um like learning from each other's failures and mistakes and errors as well, um, but it it definitely takes that safety um, that we've been talking about, um, and it takes a lot of vulnerability to do that. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, not everybody is at that point, and um, and I can appreciate it, but I just think that is really when, if we want to th- see genuine change happening, that's where it's going to start really happening like being able to be open and share that, those things and share your successes publicly as well. Like, I think that's important. Everyone's looking for best practice at the moment. Everyone's looking for examples of things that have worked and that they can, um, learn from or borrow or start to, um, uh, adapt to their organizational ways of working. And yeah, so I think just having these conversations more publicly and more, uh, you know, across Uh, in a way that's like sharing rather than being competitive I think that's where the the real change and the real shift will be.
0: I had a bit of a follow-up to that um, when you both were um, discussing um, those different areas and obviously we're living in unprecedented times we've we've just been through a global pandemic and and still are going through a global pandemic and that's exposed the health inequalities um, that have been laid bare that we have known for some time now we see a rise in poverty, you know, there's been lots of talk around EDI on, on different areas and intersectionality. What's perhaps one thing throughout that whole period that surprised you the most um, in, in the charity sector, but more wider in society, about our goal to be a better reflection of, or a better, um, a better version of ourselves as a society? What's, what stood out to you? What surprised you the most out of that journey?
2: I I I guess for me the the thing that has surprised me is probably around the um that as a sector we've still to an extent um we justify the 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 ends by the the, the means by the ends. You know, we, we still keep doing the well we're trying to do good and we're trying to to you know alleviate poverty or, or, or address um cancer or harm or whatever it might be, the social change that we're trying to affect. And we still aren't really getting that the means aren't justified by the ends. And I I wonder if some of that is around a heightened fear um, that we've seen a lot of with with a lot of the social media movements. There's been a lot of um, conversation and and, and often quite uh, challenging conversation um, of bodies, including you know some some of the infrastructure colleagues that I have, and I think that some of some of that has has heightened the fear rather than shifted the movement. Um, and I think fear that it, change that is generated through fear sometimes is not um, not not that it's not pure, but it's not the change that's going to stick. We're doing something to respond to a, a fear stimulus rather than we're doing something because we want to genuinely change. Um, and that I think has been, for me, perhaps quite surprising. That that when the pandemic hit, we focused in on making sure that the person who was suffering cancer had got support. We didn't necessarily think about well, how is the how is my workforce going to be continuing through this? How are they going to respond to the news of the murder of George Floyd? How are they going to deal with the safeguarding scandals that have come through? We, we I can understand why because you still have this perpetuated myth that the charity commission and politicians often say about money being spent on the front line. So we're always steered down that front end, we're we're rarely given the incentives to think about the back end. And for me, if we don't get the whole of the back end, right, that's not bad charity spend, that's essential charity spend, because we can't change the world if we're not creating spaces where people are bringing their best um, selves to work. You know, how can I increase impact if I don't feel safe and valued in my workplace? Um, so, you know, I understand why our charities have been steered towards that front end and not really thought about um, the back end as much, perhaps. And um, maybe that's an unfair thing to say. Maybe that's an unfair thing to say. They've probably thought of nothing more over the last um, over the last few months. Yeah, it's a really difficult one to answer. <laughs>
0: It's a great, it's a great answer, Karen. Um, Yasin, over to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think to build off that, like, I completely agree. I think um, so many organizations have been firefighting on so many fronts, um, especially externally. And like you said, the focus has to be on, um, you know, the output, the work that they do in so many ways. Um, But like, without recognizing the you know, investing in your workforce is a long-term investment. And yeah, it will take time and it will take continuous uh, investment. Um, but it's so essential. And the rewards of the ultimate uh, benefit of that. Not only justifies you know, the immediate spending and the immediate cost of it, but it just, it, it will make the output that so much more effective and so much more genuine and so much more um. Like it, it, it expands and opens up the potential to reach so so much that. Um, but I think it is hard to make take those initial steps, and um, I, it's really interesting as reflecting on what you're saying about fear, and I think that it is it's a really fascinating point. Um, and I don't like, I don't know that I was surprised by it, but I think perhaps yeah, what I'm seeing more and more is that level of um, so much of the focus being put on the external and not really kind of, so, you know, you've got these organizations who might deal in things like mental health um, and, and, you know, kind of putting supporting communities on that level, on that front, but then looking internally at their staff's mental health and everybody is just like at wit's end, overworked um, at the door of um, being, uh, what's the term Um, burnout and, you know, kind of like, not good mental health at all, like half the workforce forced out because of uh, sick leave and other things going on. And, you know, when you take a step back just a little bit, you're like, how are you going to go on as an organization if you aren't addressing these things and if you aren't putting in the, the time and the resources and the support necessary for your staff? um And so I think that maybe not like from my perspective, it wasn't a huge shock, but it was also at the same time, it's a little bit. Um, disheartening because I do believe that, like, everybody involved in most of this work have pure intentions for the most part. I think that, like, even if some of it needs, you know, some, some, we need to reflect on it a little bit. I do believe that you don't go into this work to, you know, make loads of money or anything. Like, the intention is there, even if it's misguided. Um, but then, but so I, I do think that actually maybe. That's a that's a positive start. That's great. But let's now take that moment and that time to take a step back and reflect and maybe think about where we're guiding that intention. Um, because you know and like i just don't think it's sustainable otherwise i think you know everyone's going to end up go, go suffering from burnout everyone's going to end up um not being able to support and do the work they're they are wanting to do externally um just cuz it's not sustainable and i've witnessed you know people especially junior members and staff who kind of do this who have great passion and then either become completely disillusioned with the organizations they work for or just you know can't sustain it for themselves financially and emotionally so will hop ship to like the private sector and um, it's kind of we're losing amazing, incredible, passionate people, and we can't really blame them. Um, and so it is, I think, so vitally important at the moment just to take that step back, especially now that we are coming out of this, moment, this like the pandemic a little bit, and we kind of have a greater idea of how these are, you know, how we're going to run in the future. I think a lot of there's a lot of learning to be done from the last year. There's a lot of learning about things like flexibility and well being and mental health and all that sort of stuff as well. And I think. Yeah, it's just a pivotal moment to really make sure that we're taking stock of what's happened in the last year. You know, there's a lot of things that we could never have predicted we would ever have been in the situation we were in. But what can we take away from that now? And how can we make sure that, you know, we're not facing those things again? Or if we, are, we do face similar situations in the future, that we're more prepared for them?
2: The the word that you used there that really resonated me, with me was firefighting. You know, I think I think because we have been trying to ensure that we continue to deliver to the people that we're there to serve. I'm not saying that we haven't prioritised our own workforce, but we've relied on their goodwill. And in a blink of an eye, not just a month or two months has gone, a whole year's gone by. And I know from my own experience within CFG, we have not put the, the resource and the effort in a sustained way that we really should have done consistently on the culture for the whole of that pandemic, because for some of it we were trying to stop the organisation failing, um, you know. So I, I don't, I don't blame um, my colleagues across the sector at all. But I do think perhaps the surprise for me wasn't for the sector; it was for my own personal surprise that suddenly you blink and a month has gone, a year has gone, um, and you're playing catch-up suddenly. And that that tension between serving your beneficiaries and serving your staff and ensuring that you've got a safe place of work that can be impactful is a really tricky balance to to strike.
1: Mm. Yeah thank you both that was really interesting I think it speaks to um, a whole other area doesn't it around resourcing and having that ability and flexibility to actually adjust and I think like you said Karen the the ability for finance to be able to prioritise the back end. So actually the front end can move forward in that positive way with everyone on board and everyone understanding that agenda. And I think that links to authenticity, genuine changes and all of those things. Um, So just as we start to kind of wrap up, um, I wanted to link back to, so obviously being okay with getting things wrong and making those genuine changes. I wondered if you both um, could provide any examples of breast best practice within the sector and from further afield about this work and what advice would you offer to our listeners who may be either beginning this or starting to have these conversations or want to further in their organizations?
2: So I guess from my perspective obviously I operate within the infrastructure space so what I see is very much at the infrastructure level and there are three examples that I think have been um, really good actually over the last sort of 12-18 months and Kivo's work with Voice for Change and particularly its eight principles um, to address diversity, the diversity deficit in the charity sector, I think is a really common sense, non-jargonistic set of of principles that enable organisations to start uh, moving through this journey. Similarly, ACF, the Association of Charitable Foundations, um, we know that there is a very, very uh, disproportionate representation of of middle-aged white men on 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 board the foundations they're acutely aware of it and their work has been a real i think signal of both vulnerability and commitment to change um and their nine pillars of dei uh, around their sort of strong foundations program i think is really good and then just a personal uh, experience and exposure i uh, until very recently i was the chair of the directory of social change dsc um and their work has been extraordinary internally um it's it's felt very authentic, very staff-driven and empowered. Um, It's been very change-orientated, very action-orientated. The words and the actions have absolutely been matched. And I think they've been very um, open and vulnerable with with what they've um, experienced and shared that uh, with the wider sector. And I think it's only by being open with what has worked for us and what hasn't worked for us, we can start to take the best of each other's practices And then start to build on them and and tailor them to our own needs so that we can genuinely foster change rather than um tick any boxes or write a good report um i
3: think the word that's resonated with me there is action um and so that's so vitally important and we've had um you know at least a year for some organizations of conversations of um you know, culture audits and staff questionnaires and feedback. And, you know, some organizations have created uh, their employee network groups and um, working groups and things and and strategy like development groups and things like that. And so there's been a lot of conversation. And I think that is essential. Like you can't, like uh, you don't just dive into this work and because that's where things get go wrong. That's where you make the mistakes that make things worse. So I think it is vitally important to have spent that time having this conversation and for organizations who haven't started doing that yet like that's a starting point absolutely um getting that the feedback getting people's real experiences um and you know creating a space where they can do that in an open honest way and usually that might involve you know an external um uh, facilitator or mediator in some sense or just thinking ways to really encourage that um internally um but The next step, this action step, is where I think a lot of organizations kind of are now. And um, that's where it gets really difficult because it is hard work. All of this is hard work. Implementing this stuff, not seeing immediate results, um, still having people who um, have been hurt by, you know, the work the organizations haven't done previously, um, or not having their experiences valued, or having to you know, have experienced microaggressions and um, things like lack of progression opportunities and lack of support and lack of understanding of their experiences, people are hurt. And that doesn't just go away, even if, again, with good intentions or with putting all this stuff into place. That kind of change is going to only be um, assuaged by action and people seeing that you are committed to this work, regardless of um, even getting negative feedback, that you're taking that on board and you're learning from it and you're continuing to dedicate yourself to it and build on it. Um, Because I have seen situations where people kind of start the work and they go, actually, we're getting a lot of feedback that's quite frankly a little bit mean and we didn't expect it to be that harsh. And so we don't want to do this anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, you're not ready to do this work. You're right. And, you know, inevitably what you'll see happening is like half of your workforces leave not only the people of color and not only the marginalized staff, but like other staff as well, because who wants to work in that environment? Um, and then obviously that will impact, uh, you know, the work that you're doing externally as well. Um, so yeah, like that really solid starting point of actively encouraging voices and feedback and um, and creating opportunities for, uh, and just by the nature of things, it's likely to be junior members of staff to really, Um, contribute and participate in the conversations and to have uh, some decision-making powers and some opportunities to feed into those conversations but then really really like committing to this action point and actively doing work and actively um, you know putting your money where your mouth is literally putting the resources behind things and I think that that's where we might start to see the trust being rebuilt Um, and I generally I think the you know, a structure, uh, cult- uh, cultural change and shift within the sector as well. But I don't think we're, we're kind of at the point where we're really seeing those results yet. So it is kind of a little bit hard to say um, what best practice or, you know, organizations are getting it right bang on because I think everybody is still so in the midst of their their journeys and even organizations who have been on these journeys for a, a longer period of time, I think, have had, like we've all had that moment of reckoning in the last year where, you um, you know specifically that was around anti-racism but then people are being forced to re-examine um other characteristics as well and how you know they will be impacted by you know what I've done or not done by those organizations so um uh, yeah at this stage I think uh it's just about continuing to reflect on what has happened previously the roles that we've all played in upholding these systems um and then really kind of learning from that into and and trying to mold that into action points and then really starting to embed that and put that into into practice Um, and then I think we'll start to see some real um, solid results.
1: Mm. Thank you both no I think there's there's so many insights there and I think you've just spoken as well to to the consequences of not not doing this work and not committing to it and kind of um, making sure everyone's working towards that same agenda and on the same page but that requires resource time commitment and not just temporary commitment long term commitment um thank you both so much for all of the learnings you've kind of shared um it's been invaluable i've thoroughly enjoyed hearing everything you've shared um we kind of wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to say that you maybe haven't had a chance to anything else you'd like to add in
2: my only uh, comment is i think for leaders we have to have to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable you know, the biggest lesson for myself over the, over the course of my leadership journey has been learning to be uncomfortable and, and not to freak out when I feel real discomfort to be able to stand back and, and take the, as you were saying, Ezzini, about the, dis, the, the really uncomfortable things that are being said to you that you might think, oh, that hurts. Yeah, it's going to suck it up. That's what you're there to do. You're there to lead. And that means sometimes you have to roll with the punches and find the diamonds in the dirt. It might be wrapped up in hurt because hurt people hurt people. But you 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 can't discount people's opinions and thoughts and experiences because the the package in which they're giving it to you is uncomfortable. So as a leader, we've got to be comfortable with discomfort.
3: Yeah, 100% agree. Like that has to be the, the starting point, that vulnerability, that acceptance that you've got things wrong, that we are all fallible um, and okay, Uh, but also not just staying in that place um, moving towards action from that as well and recognizing you know power and privilege and um, what we can start to how we can utilize that to actually improve things and change things um, and create and and disseminate some of that power and privilege as well and um, open up space or even maybe in an ideal world um, restructure what that actually looks like Um, and I think my final point would be that like this work, like we've talked so much about um, authenticity and it's like I could, all I can do is, is um, just reiterate that. Like it has to be authentic to you as an organization and the ways that you work and it has to be sustainable. And so if you're just gonna, you know, do this for a year or two and find that it's a bit hard or the few people in the organization who are driving it have now left. So it kind of, you know, falls to the side, you're you're kind of wasting your time now don't even not to say don't start them but like it's not going to do anything and then you would have just had a kind of stressful couple of years you have to do it in a way that makes sense to you and you have to be committed to it long term and yeah that needs to be that that will inevitably involve a lot of um structural reconsiderations and thinking about how you're embedding it in a way to make sure that it can be sustainable long term but i think that's the uh, um my, my final point is that like, it is going to be a difficult and it's going to be difficult for a while. You aren't going to see those quick results because if you are seeing just like lots of snappy quick results, I would take a step back again and go like, actually wait, what's going on here? Is this right? Um, so I'll say that those can't happen but I'd be very surprised if they did. And if things are being done authentically and in a genuine way, I, I, it just takes time and patience but it also takes commitment and perseverance as well because it is isn't an, an easy journey.
1: Brilliant. Thank you both so, so much. I think there's so much of our listeners to take away from that. Maybe have to listen to it multiple times to take away everything.
0: <laughs> and and from me, just want to say a huge thanks to you both, Karen and Yasin, for, for sharing that, giving your time as well, because I know it's Friday evening as well. So I'm sure you're looking forward to the weekend after a long week. So thank you both. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Um, And do keep in touch with us as well. We'd love to hear kind of what you're up to and share things with us and hopefully have you on the podcast again at some point in the future too. Thank you again to Yassine and Karen for joining us for this episode about being okay and getting things wrong and making genuine changes. We hope you enjoyed this rich and engaging conversation and took away some valuable insights. This is a conversation which shouldn't stop here. And we should aim to share and embed with our own organizations. One key takeaway from this episode for me was the importance of being authentic and vulnerable to openly discuss the challenges of your organization. And it is equally as important that colleagues across the organization are involved every stage of this journey and leaders are held to account.
1: Despite the obvious challenges that the sector has seen within the EDI space, which has been highlighted in the last 18 months, it is refreshing to see that some organisations are genuinely listening, learning and engaging in this work to move and serve more effectively all communities. This leaves us feeling hopeful that progress is possible. We hope you have enjoyed the three parts of this series, And thank you again to all of our guests who have reminded us that on this journey to a more equitable, diverse and inclusive sector, a commitment to learning, creating space and being vulnerable is critical. Our job is not to be perfect, but to move the needle in the right direction. Thank you for taking the time and listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. It's just left for us to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksmit for our beautiful website, take a look at charitychat.org.uk and Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. We hope to talk to you again soon. Take care.